We are late Thursday, early Friday morning of the Friday, of Good Friday, when Jesus is going to eventually be crucified. This is the final week before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has secluded himself with Peter, James, and John. They're praying in this place, but also at a Gethsemane, an oil press. He's, Jesus has three times petitioned the Father and said, if there's, if there's, I, I want this cup to pass. If, if there's any other way, but not what I will, what you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. So Jesus has submitted himself to the, the Father's agenda. And every time he's returned, he's found his disciples either asleep or at least kind of disengaged, not fully present with him in a way that he needed in his humanity, suffering under the weight of understanding that he's going not just to his death, but to face the wrath of God on behalf of all of us. And the third time he comes back and he says, okay, time's up, everybody up, here comes my betrayer. And this is where we pick it up in Mark 14, verses 43. Just as he, Jesus, was speaking... Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Verse 43, you have this picture of a group that made up something called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like a Jewish supreme court in the first century, which kind of ruled out of Jerusalem. And they have sent, we don't really have an equivalent, but it would be kind of like the church police. These are um, parts of the Sanhedrin that are allowed to confront people when it comes to blasphemy or heresy and call them to account. So this group is made up of some chief priests, some scribes or teachers of the law, and some elders. And they've come to arrest Jesus, but they do this at night under the cover of darkness because Jesus is very, very popular with the average Jewish person. And you can imagine that, the feedings, the miracles, the hope that he brings, the different understanding of not just what God's kingdom is, but how it's going to be breaking forth in and through him. So Jesus has massive popularity. They can't, he's been, and Jesus is right, he has been teaching in the temple courts, but they can't really do anything about it because they know that if they are, try to arrest him during the day, there's going to be a riot and the people are going to overthrow them. Matthew 26 actually talks about that. And so they use the cover of darkness. Verse 44, Judas comes along and it says that the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. So this betrayal of Judas is completely intentional. It's well thought out. It wasn't reactionary. It was a plan. In Matthew 26, it says, One of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And a few times in the gospel, 
you get these, not, well, not clues, accusations that while Judas was with Jesus for three years in this inner circle, privy to conversations that very few other people were, he was continually pulled by the love of money. Money was his idol, and we see it here, this betrayal fueled ultimately by money. Verse 45, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him in ancient cultures, and some today, right, a kiss in the cheek, maybe on both sides, is a greeting of friendship and hospitality, which gives a bit of a knife twist to this betrayal. Judas didn't, didn't just kind of point from afar and say, oh, that, that guy right there, that's, the, that's Jesus, take him. He kind of postures as if he's embracing Jesus as a friend, as if Jesus he postures as if he's offering a safe space to Jesus, and it's really the signal to let the hammer fall. The men seized Jesus and arrested him, and then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And in Matthew 26, there's a really uh, cool elaboration of, of this moment. Mark just kind of goes through it very quickly, like Mark often does. Matthew expands it a little bit. He says, with that with the betrayal, one of Jesus' companions in John 18.10 kind of outs the person as Peter. It was Peter. Draws a sword, reaches, uh, draws out a sword, strikes the high servant, cutting off his ear. Like he, w- he wasn't aiming for his ear, right? Like he's trying to strike a killing blow. He's trying to kill the guy, but he misses. Strikes off his ear. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. There's an immediate turn. And, I, and you think about how kinetic this moment is. Everyone on edge, people, this betrayal's happened, everyone's stomach has dropped if you're a disciple. The religious police are kind of ready for a fight. They don't really know what's going to happen. Peter draws a sword, cuts off the ear, and then Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword back in its place. For all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then I picture this next line. I picture Jesus walking closer to Peter, getting right up in his face, and saying these words, Peter, do you not think that I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Dude, put your sword away. If I wanted to, this could be over like that. I could obliterate everybody here in a moment. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? That it has to happen this way. I think that's a one-on-one close conversation with Peter. Put your sword away. You don't think I can stop this? You think that this is just happening to me and I'm a victim? You don't need to defend me. The Father will defend me and vindicate me. This is the way it has to be. Jesus turns to the group now the rest of the people who have come to arrest him. And he says, am I leading a rebellion? That you would come at me with swords and clubs? Is this a political insurrection? Have I been telling people to overthrow the Sanhedrin, to overthrow Rome? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me then, right? Jesus is kind of baiting them. It's interesting that you're doing it now because I've been here all week. I've been out in the open. Why didn't you stand by the courage of your convictions then? If I really have done something wrong, either for the Jewish council or before Rome, arrest me in public, but you haven't. He's calling them out on their cowardice. 
Jesus understands that he's too popular to risk a daytime arrest. And he also knows he can't really be brought up on charges of rebellion because he's never taught or encouraged political overthrow of Rome. Even though that's what a lot of people were hoping, he, the kind of the end of his ministry is going to culminate in, is an overthrow of Rome. Verse 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. For some, in this moment, if you can place yourself there in your imagination, it looks like Jesus and his kingdom agenda is unraveling at lightning speed into chaos, chaos and into failure. This certainly looks and feels like the beginning of the end. But Jesus has a different view from the inside. And he sees it as something that he knows is happening according to a preordained plan. That hasn't saved him from experiencing deep anguish, as we just read about in Gethsemane. But it does allow him to have a certain poise in this moment. Verse 50, everyone deserted him and fled, meaning his disciples. Here's that scattering that Jesus referred to earlier in the chapter. The disciples are scandalized, scandalon. They fall away from their master's side. It just feels like that, you know, this house that they thought was built on solid ground, it, it's just a house of cards, and it feels like it's all falling apart. They scatter. And then verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Okay, that is weird. That's a weird, that's a weird detail for Mark to include when there's such a paucity of detail in the preceding verses, and then here he is, and, and I mean, there's, there's no natural break in the original scrolls, but that's what we're going to break this morning. So it both feels like a weird detail to insert into the passage and a strange place to end the reading. Uh, in short order, a lot of people have asked different questions throughout church history in terms of who was this young man. Uh, quite a few people, and maybe it's a leading theory, although it's quite difficult to prove, but some church tradition says it was actually the, the writer of the gospel. It was John Mark. He's inserting himself into the story. Um, not sure about that. There's, uh, that kind of comes from an early church tradition, I think in the 4th century, so pretty late. So we, we don't really know. But why this detail? Well, in general, whenever the Bible gives us details, especially names of places, very, um, very specific details, like the feeding of the 5,000, like the number of fish and loaves that the little kid brings Jesus, or the names of people, that's an ancient way of trying to establish the historicity of the event, meaning it's an ancient way of providing footnotes to say these things actually happened, and a lot of these people are still alive, so you can fact-check these things by going to these people and answering them. And, you know, some modern scholarship will even place the Gospel of Mark within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that feels like a long time for us in the age of the Internet. That's an incredibly short amount of time in terms of ancient documentation. The space between Jesus' life and ministries and the first recorded circulated scrolls are very, very... I mean, historically, they are like something happening last night and then we read about it on the internet today. That's how fast it's happening from an ancient point of view. So when people are reading this Gospel of Mark for the first time, almost everybody who's named is still alive. Or 
if they're not alive, someone around them still is. And you can fact check this stuff. So when we get to Mark chapter 14, we're going to read that when Jesus is making his way to the cross and this man named Simon of Cyrene carries it for Jesus, we're also going to find out that Simon of Cyrene was the father of two boys, Alexander and Rufus. And depending on how you read Romans 16, 13, because there's another Rufus mentioned there, but most commentators disconnect those two at all. Alexander and Rufus in Mark 15, who are the sons of Simon of Cyrene, are never mentioned again in all the Bible. Just never. This is Simon of Cyrene. These are his boys. And the subtext is, so you can go and talk to them. And maybe even uh, Simon himself. Is this, did you actually carry Jesus's? Was that honestly your dad? Did this, did, this, did this thing actually really happen? So details, generally speaking, in the Bible are there to invite people to actually validate whether this is true or not. Right? The Gospels, much of the Bible, not every book of the Bible, some books are more poetic and some are meant to be more, um, are, are designed to be interpreted less literally because they serve a different purpose. But the Gospels are not written as kind of general fables teaching broad principles and spiritual truths. They're not, they're not, desi- they're not in their construction designed to be myths or fables. They're clearly written to be historical accounts of what Jesus, what a real Jesus did in like real life, real history, in a real place 2,000 years ago. And so Mark and all the gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit often add these details so that the early readers and any other Christians through the centuries would understand that if you've placed your faith in Christ and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection, you are placing your faith in something that really actually happened. There's evidence for it. There's historical evidence. You can go to some of these same places. You can talk to these people. There isn't anything vague about these stories. They're precise enough that someone, well, many people, when these texts were being constructed, they could have said, that, did, that is not true. I've never, I don't remember anyone carrying Jesus' cross. Like, I, that's not true. Point it out right there. Boom. Done. That's not the way the scriptures are written. They're written so that we can know our faith isn't just built on a feeling or a sense of broad, sweeping principles. These are things that actually happen. They're trustworthy and true. Luke talks about that at the start of his gospel. I've made a first-hand account. I've compiled eyewitness accounts that you can know the certainty of the faith that you hold. Okay, a few quick reflections emerging out of this text for me. Number one, if you choose to invest in people, they will fall away, they will let you down, some of them will betray you, but you should invest in them anyways. If you choose to invest in people on any level, parent to a child, teammate to teammate, schoolmate to schoolmate, friend to friend, spouse to spouse, the people that you invest in will fall away. Sometimes, often, they will let you down. Some may even betray you. But you should invest in them anyways. Judas spent over three years, almost 24-7 with Jesus. Think about the investment of time, energy, care, listing, support that Jesus invested in Judas over that time. 
even when we don't know maybe exactly the moment when Jesus realizes that Judas is the one who's going to betray him. It's a bit of conjecture there. But we do know that he understands that his betrayal is going to happen and it's going to be Judas before he decides to wash all the disciples' feet. So he still serves his enemy. He still models an enemy-serving love. Jesus is not naive. He understands what's at stake, what it's going to cost him, and he loves anyways. The fact that people are sinful and broken and unfaithful and cowardly and fair weather is not a justification for not serving. If Jesus had determined in his own heart to only love and only serve and only die for those who were going to be rock solid, have their stuff together, and every time Jesus said, jump, they said, how high? None of us would be here right now. None of us would. And I understand that investing in people is hard, And it's made harder as we have experiences of I'm pouring my life out, I'm praying, I'm striving, I want to see this in this person's life, and then it doesn't pan out, and we're heartbroken, and so we, we hold back and we scale back, and we start being measured in our loving sacrifice towards other people. I understand that's a natural reaction, but we are called to have a supernatural investment in people. I mean, Jesus understands that heartbrokenness, right? I mean, if you fast forward the script a little bit, you get to Friday, 3 o'clock, Jesus breathes his last breath, he's died. You take in a moment, you just look around you, look at that man hanging on the cross, and almost everybody that he has invested in that has said, we'll never fall away, Jesus. Even if we have to die for you, we won't, we won't fall away. And they're gone. And his, this, this king, this new leader, he's naked and humiliated and uh, beaten up and tortured and broken and dead in a cross. From any worldly, me- um, any worldly measure, Jesus' ministry in that moment looks like catastrophic failure. It looks irredeemable. But Jesus trusted himself to the Father And he trusted that God the Father would vindicate his faithfulness. And that should be our expectation as well. Because you and I are not called to results. We are called to obedience. We can't make the thing that we're hoping for happen. One person plants, another person waters, but only God creates growth. That's what Paul's going to say to the early church. That's good counsel for us. We're not called to results. You're not called to be successful in your loving and serving of other people. You're not called to produce that end that you have in mind. You're like, oh, if that happens, then I'll know that this was worth it and it worked. That's not what you're called to. You're called to right now be faithful in the moment. Parents, you are not called to be successful parents. You are called to be godly parents and obedient Husbands, spouses, wives, you are not called to be successful, to have this kind of a marriage. You can't control your spouse. You are called to love and serve your spouse. Friends, you're not called in your friendships to certain results. You can't control how the other person is going to react. You can only control your faithfulness before God. Sunday school teachers, you invest in these kids 
You are not called to results. You are not called so that all your kids at this stage are going to be loving and serving Jesus. You know you can't control that. You serve anyways. You love anyways. You pray for them anyways. Leaders of any kind, youth leaders, church leaders, in all of our relationships, we love and serve. We have to be careful not to only love on the presumption or the sense that, yeah, this is going to kind of work out. Jesus shows us we love those who God has put in our path, even if by worldly standards it's no use, or it looks irredeemable, or it looks like a waste of time. You're not called to results, you're called to obedience. So invest in people, even though they're going to let you down and fall away and betray you. Number two, when your world starts to unravel, will your faith express itself through confidence and thanksgiving? This is a pretty interesting passage because just a passage before it in Gethsemane, Jesus is coming to the end of his humanity, sweating drops of blood, Luke says. And he's saying, if there's any way this cup can pass, this cup of suffering, this cup cup of wrath, if there's any way that this, the atoning sacrifice, if there's any other mechanism by which this can happen, can we just bypass, can this cup pass me by? But ultimately, three times Jesus says, but not, in a sense, what I want, what you want. Not my agenda, your agenda. Not my kingdom, not what I would prefer, not what works for me, what you have called me to, God. And so there's deep emotional struggle with Jesus. But then when, when, when it comes to the arrest, right, and, and Peter is flailing and trying to kill people and defend Jesus, and Jesus just kind of calmly shuts the whole thing down and says, put away the sword, I don't need your defense. I mean, we see Jesus operating, again, I think in his full humanity, in a different kind of a posture towards what's happening. To everyone else, the whole thing is coming undone. But Jesus feels steady. There's a confidence there. There's a posture of trust. And do I and do we exhibit that same poise when things spiral into chaos in our lives? And you might hear that and think, well, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to, Jeff, because, you know, it's one thing if you stub your toe, right? And I'm suffering that way. But if you're talking about, like, my life is falling apart, there's probably many people here who have walked that path where on a particular day or a week, things went from good to bad to worse. And things began to unravel very, very quickly. And now you're playing that back in your mind and you're hearing me say this and saying confidence, thanksgiving. You're like, how, how does that even work? That's the last thing that you feel in these situations. And that might be true. Our immediate reaction is often shock. It's often what Jesus did. If there's any other way, could this cut pass from me? But the Bible also says to give thanks in all circumstances. But that's not because we like what is happening to us. Not because we're trying to just grit our teeth and being like, oh, praise God, this is great. And, and feigning a kind of fake worship and a fake um, joy. But Scripture does say that you can give thanks in all things. You can give thanks in what is happening because you can be confident in at least three things. I'm going to steal these unashamedly from Jonathan Edwards' first sermon he ever preached. He's an old-school preacher guy, if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is. First sermon he ever preached at the age of 18. Three truths that allow you to live with confidence and thanksgiving in and through situations 
where your life is falling apart. Number one, your bad things will turn out for good. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good. Not all things are good. In all things, even in hardships and evil things and things that look like complete injustices, like the cross, God works for the good of who? Of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. If you are a Christian, and if you are going through any kind of a trial, even a severe one, the Bible says, your bad things God is going to use for good. Number two, your good things can never be taken away from you. The most important things in your life, your position in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, the inheritance that you have in heaven, the riches that you have in Christ, present sufferings, they can't take those away from you. You'll never lose those. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, the present or the future, no powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, hard times are going to come, but nothing can separate you from who you are in Christ and all that that affords you in this life and in the life to come. And so your bad things work for good. God will use your bad things for good. Your good things can never be taken away from you. And third, your best things are yet to come. You can have a different kind of posture in suffering because if you are a Christian and you're reading your Bible, you know that at least what you can say is, this is not the end of my story. This is not how my story ends. My story does not end in darkness and pain and suffering. My story ends, and then in a sense begins again, Roman, or Revelation 21, I saw new heavens and a new earth, right? The old heavens and the old earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. I heard a voice. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And there will be, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Your best things are yet to come. And so because of these three truths, when your world starts to unravel, and it will, everybody in this room is going to have a worst day of my life, or worst week, or worst month, or worst year. It will happen. You can stand, and you will transition if you do what Jesus did. Go into a secret place by yourself in the garden. Pour your heart out to God. Be in anguish. Be completely vulnerable before God. God will strengthen you and can transition you to a place of confidence, a quiet, calm, and confidence, and even thanksgiving, not for what is happening, but that in it, God's going to do something beautiful and amazing, both in you and in the lives of other people. And when that happens, your response in that place of suffering, when your world's falling apart, is going to be, it's going to seem insane, and it's going to be astounding non-Christians around you. It's just oil and water. It doesn't make any sense. How are you not flipping the table and giving up on life? How are you not living and rejecting this God who's supposed to protect you all the time? From this posture, you have a unique opportunity to glorify God. I want to end by going back to the final two verses those weird verses about the naked young man running away. Because I think there's something pretty neat here, actually. I'm going to read it again. Verse 51. There's a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment following Jesus. 
And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Quick two verses. You can skim over it really quickly. But again, whenever we see details in the scriptures, just try and get into the habit of just pausing and saying, is there anywhere else where any of this is coming up? Any other imagery here? Notice what Mark is drawing our attention to. A man, naked, in a garden, running from God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Adam, Genesis 3, betrays the calling God has on his life. Eat of anything you want. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Betrays his calling. Realizes he's naked, shamed, hides from God. Right? There's a very subtle, or not so subtle, depending on your perspective, echo here from Genesis 3. We're supposed to kind of hear it. Be like, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, naked, garden, running, hmm. Where a naked and ashamed Adam is hiding from God after betraying his calling. And from that day, when Adam did it, to this day, this particular day, all of mankind has been falling away, has been scattering, has been turning their back on their creator, has been betraying their creator and their calling as image bearers. But on this day, something different is about to happen. Because a new man has entered the garden. See, Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is a second Adam. He's a new and better Adam. And this new and better Adam is not going to betray God. He's going to be faithful to what God has called him to. He's going to faithfully reveal God to the world. And Jesus, the true and better Adam, is actually going to pass this test in the garden where the first Adam failed. See, Mark's gospel in this passage alone, holds out this revolutionary truth. It wants us to feel and to hear Jesus is the one and the only one who can redeem the image of God in us through his obedience. He's the only one capable of atoning for our sin and leading us into being renewed image bearers, being the men and women and the creatures under God's leadership that we were designed to be. And through his obedience, through his obedience on the cross, Jesus can actually take the consequences of our betrayal of God and our failure and our, our unfaithfulness, and he'll take it into himself and he can give us his righteousness. There can be this great exchange. And that is why I think Mark would want us to end here on a scene of this naked young man running away, scared. And Mark would want us to hear, no, you don't need to run away from God anymore. The new, the second, the better, the true Adam is here. And so if you are spiritually naked and if you are spiritually ashamed, don't run from him, but run towards him because he alone can save Let's pray.
Jesus, your grace towards us is amazing. Who of us here hasn't betrayed you in some way, big or small, like Judas? Whether it's for money, sex, power, comfort. God, we don't deserve your love and grace. And we acknowledge that. And we thank you that you didn't make our any spiritual accomplishment necessary in order to receive it. It's just a gift. We're all spiritually naked. We're all spiritually ashamed. We're all in debt before you, God. And yet you chose to die for us. God, may we live with a greater awareness and a greater sensitivity to your grace in our lives and help us to run to you, not away from you, We proclaim that you are mighty to save God. We thank you for your costly, um, never-breaking, never-giving-up love, God. Thank you, in Jesus' name.